Thank you, gang. Let's say thanks to our creative team. They did a good job. Thank you. Awesome. Well, we've been in a series that's called Waiting, Dating, Mating, or Debating, and we've talked about waiting and why you should embrace these seasons of singleness in your life as a lifestyle choice, and, in, uh, and work on your focus, work on your direction, work on your personal wholeness so that you don't become a liability to someone when you are attached in an intimate relationship. That was waiting. We talked about dating, and we talked about the idea of the fact that uh, really everything in life is a hypothesis until it's uh, confirmed or discons- disconfirmed. And any of you who work or study in science understand this. And life should be approached as a scientist practitioner. That is, formulating a hypothesis, should I do this, shouldn't I do this? And then using all of the wise stewardship at your disposal, including guidance from our Father in Heaven, to help you make the very best decisions. And dating is one of those things. It's a hypothesis, could I make a life with this person? And uh, there are wise ways to do that. You can get the messages on that stuff uh, on our YouTube channel or Spotify or podcast or something like that. They will really help you if you suffer insomnia. The, uh, we then talked about, uh, what did we say? We did, dating, we did waiting, we did dating, we talked about mating, and uh, we really had a look at sexuality, and uh, we had a look at what the Bible says, we had a look at what uh, sexology and science says. Um, I talked to you about the weird things I had to Google that week, and the fact that I needed safe search turned on, and uh, we, we, we talked about the theology of it, and why sex is so powerful, and yet so uh, high in capacity to fracture and wound people. Uh, We talked about marriage and what marriage is, what marriage is as a sacred covenant, not just a legal agreement, but a sacred covenant, something involving God and something that God is present in, making a human couple's relationship sacred space. Really important. You can get all those things off our uh, digital archive if you're interested in catching up. So tonight we're finishing off the series. This will be the last time you hear from me on this topic for a little while, I'd say, so you can all like go back to your normal lives and enjoy yourselves. Um, But we are talking tonight about debating. We're talking about conflict. Now, you need to hear what I'm going to say tonight on two levels. First of all, uh, the primary uh, purpose of this relationship, was the, of this series, was to talk about intimate relationships. And so, therefore, everything somehow involved um, this idea of who you're dating or who you're married and that type of thing. But what I'm going to say tonight involves intimate relationships. So, I may heavily illustrate from the marriage realm or the intimacy realm, but uh, it, it actually also broadly applies to all of human relationships. Is that Okay. So if you're single, if you're going to stay single for the rest of your life, you don't have to turn off. If you're not married right now, you don't have to turn off because you can learn something and process and ask yourself some questions about the way it is that you do conflict as well. One of the problems with conflict in our lives is we have very faulty understandings of it, don't we? We imagine that we can live a conflict-free life and in fact, some of us, we suffer from the misguided idea that our life should be free from conflict. And so because we suffer from the misguided idea that life should be free from conflict, what we do is we avoid it at all costs. Now, the truth is, conflict is a permanent part of the cosmos, conflict is a permanent part of life, and if you've ever been around people very long, even for five minutes, you will realize conflict potential is always in the room, isn't that true? And so avoiding it is actually quite a foolish thing to do. If you avoid conflict, then all you do is you add more and more air pressure to the balloon of your psyche. And eventually, if you don't have a healthy way to release the air pressure in your psyche, you're going to pop it. So you have to have a healthy attitude towards conflict. And conflict avoidance is not a healthy attitude. Well, then what do I do? Do I become a conflict junkie, like looking for a fight, looking to engage people, looking to argue, looking to pound on people every moment I get? That's probably the other misguided direction we take in our lives. That Some people, they like conflict, but they like conflict just a little too much. 
And they give you these narratives. Oh, I just told them. Oh, I just told them. Oh, I don't care what anyone thinks. I don't back down. And we can take on this domineering and this bullyish approach to life as well. One of the reasons that humans do conflict in very flawed ways is because we grow up in systems called families and those systems called families grow up in a broader system called a community and that community functions in a broader system called a society and that society functions in a broader system called this world. And at every step of the way, from the macro biggest picture right down to the micro picture of our family or our psyche, our mind, our will, our emotions... We are trained, before we ever think consciously about conflict, we are trained in conflict patterns that we inherit from the environment that we've grown up with. Just dig the person in the ribs next to you and say, your environment's pretty important, you know. I can't see any rib digging. I can't hear any saying. I won't move on until I hear and see and hear. Now, let me give you an illustration about the power of your environment. And I'm not just talking about the trees and pollution, but I'm talking about the social constructs that you surround yourself with. I'm a family guy. I've got three teenage daughters. They're amazing. They are 13, they are 15, and they are 17. And I've got a beautiful wife, and she is (laughs) a seven. Um, And um, we, so in our house, we have a system. And it's something I'm incredibly mindful of and have to be very mindful of because I am one of the people at the apex of the system in our family. I'm not the only person. Danielle, she certainly knows how to throw a weight around. Not that there's that much weight to throw around, but she knows how to throw it around if she has to throw it around. Um, And so we have to be cautious because we are creating a system and we are socializing three little human beings who have grown up in our system and then their life is going to take on trajectory, direction and atmosphere based on the system that they have been raised in. So it's pretty important, this parenting thing, isn't it? And all the parents in the room already know, don't you stress about it, hey? You start from day one saving for therapy bills for when they're 22. And if they don't need to spend it, you need to spend it on yourself. Um, and it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a heavy responsibility being a parent. But why that is, because we know we're building a system that will marinate someone's life and they will taste like that almost for the rest of their life. Now, there's ways to fix it when it goes skew, if there is ways to fix it when it's skew, if that is not the primary topic of tonight's conversation. But why this is important is because you have to realize that you have been raised in a system your whole life. Everything that has brought you to now has been your presence in human systems. And your presence in human systems has an effect on you. And Paul, that great job that Paul did before, um, he was talking to us about this idea of discipleship. Now, the truth is you are a disciple. You're a disciple already. You've been discipled your whole life. The real question is what has been discipling you your whole life? And so when it comes to conflict, one of the things I've found the church is very poor at doing is teaching people how to disciple the conflict realm of their life. So here's the first quality decision. Number one, make an acknowledgement. I have conflict in my life. I will have conflict in my life. It doesn't matter how nice I am, conflict is present. Even if I cover it up, even if I avoid it, even if I'm a people pleaser, you still have conflict, okay? And conflict is everywhere in our world. So we have to learn how to disciple the conflict zones of our lives and disciple how it is I do conflict. That's the first quality choice. Here's a second quality choice. I have to realize that I have personal agency. I have personal agency. Um, I'm the boss of me now and you're the boss of you. If you're over 18 in our society, 16 now, you can move out of home. Shut up, India. Um, that's my daughter. She's up the back there checking the lists off right now, deciding to move out probably. Um, you, you're, you're the boss of you now, which means at some point I have to stop saying, but my family always did it this way. And I have to start saying, yeah, but now that I am a disciple with agency, how am I going to do it? 
And we have to do that whether we're 40 or 60 or 18 or 14. We have to decide to use our personal agency to exercise our proper thought process and engage our souls and say, hey, what would be the healthiest way for me to live my life? And tonight, we're talking about conflict. Conflict, when done badly, it ruins communities, ruins relationships, ruins families, and it can deeply scar people for a long time. It can scar people because they can get hurt during conflict. That's one way. The second way it can scar them is that their life becomes empty and devoid of people because they snip all of their connections with people and they're so bad at conflict that every time they have a conflict, it has a catastrophic result on the relationships around them and they end up a lonely and an isolated person. So even if they didn't get hurt and even if they didn't hurt anyone, they're on their own and being on your own is hurtful. Make sense? The brain registers loneliness at the same level as a broken leg, according to functional magnetic resonance imaging machinery. Conflict has a damaging effect on us. And so what we're going to talk about tonight is we're going to uh, look at the spider web of conflict and see how we might get caught in some traps that are common to us and identify how could I shift the way that I do conflict. Toxic patterns of conflict, they actually perpetuate conflict and they don't reconcile us, they don't heal us, they don't heal our relationships and they keep on broadening rifts between us and other people. This is why you can sometimes see the slow motion train wreck in marriages or romantic relationships because when a couple are not good at dealing with conflict, which will always be there, when they're not good at dealing with it and reconciling it and overcoming the tendency that conflict um, has to wound a relationship, if, if we're not good at that in our romantic relationships or other relationships, we will find those relationships fracturing time after time. And it's very often not like one decapitating machete chop, okay? That's easy. In some circumstances, we see relationships break down because of one decapitating machete chop. That is, metaphorically, of course, that is that something, one big, massive, explosive conflict happens and that's in it and it breaks everything up. But most of the time, it's not like that. Most of the time, the end of a relationship is brought about by this other thing called death by a thousand paper cuts. Okay? Death by a thousand paper cuts, then a bath of lemon juice. How about that? That's kind of what it's like. So we've got to learn how to do conflict well. The Gottman Institute is the world's most famous um, unit for studying conflict in relationships. And uh, Dr. John Gottman and his wife, they have studied relationships for 40 years uh, in a thing called the Love Lab, where literally what they would do is they would get couples to come into an, a sweet apartment and they would record everything they said and did and classify their conflict. They try to make them fight and all sorts of stuff. And uh, it's incredible. You can read down, there's a really great paper circulating online called Lessons from the Love Lab. And it's sort of their, their boiled down lessons from 30 years of studying conflicting couples. It's pretty amazing. But one of the great statistics that come from the Gottman Institute is this. Are you ready for it? Um, this is why we have to get good at conflict. Because 69% of conflict in relationships is perpetual and unsolvable. Going to let that wash over you for a second. 69% of conflict in a relationship is perpetual and non-solvable. What that means is that that problem's not going to go away. That problem's not because of a thing like, you know, um, um, he takes off his shirt and drops it on the bathroom floor and then she comes in and gets mad. That's easily solved. He just takes off his shirt and drops it in the magic hamper and then it returns somehow miraculously clean in his drawer a few weeks later. It's amazing. Who has a magic hamper in their house? Anyone? <laughs> Better be careful. You might get an elbow in the ribs from the magic fairy next to you that looks after it. Um, so that conflict can be solved because what can happen is that, um, that, is, that, is that person B could say to person A, hey, stop chucking your stuff on the floor, put it in there, you know, and then that's solved, right? 
or um, she goes to have her cup of coffee and then she leaves it on the bench and she goes to walk, work and he comes in and says, I, I just cleaned that bench. Why did you leave that dirty cup there? And the conflict can be solved because she can say, oh, I won't put my dirty cup there then. I'll put it in the sink or put it in the dishwasher or you know, use a disposable cup and throw it in the bin or something like that. So it's solvable. You can solve it. Now, here's the problem is that in relationships, 69% of conflict is not that type of conflict. The way we clash with people often has to do with worldview. We see things differently. It has to do with personality. We're wired differently. Let me just give you some basic examples. How many uh, sick individuals are morning people? Give me a wave. They're all having an early night at home. Okay, there's a few morning people. I don't understand morning people because I'm a night owl. And by default, if you're a night owl, then you are definitely not a morning person. How many non-morning people are in the room? How many people just don't like those perky people that bounce into your room like Cinderella in the morning? You know, the birds have brought their cloak to them. <laughs> and they're walking around in the morning and you're like, you are a psychopath. Whatever drugs you're on, they are harmful for you, aren't they? Isn't that true? Okay. So you can have conflict, can't you? I'm married to a morning person. I remember when Danielle and I first got married and she wanted to get up early and um, we were living at the Gold Coast at the time. It was pretty incredible. She wanted to get up early, put on her Lycra hot pants and uh, roll a blade along the beachfront. And you know what I wanted to wake up and do in the morning? I wake up and go back to sleep. <laughs> and Danielle didn't feel like that was an adequate investment in our relationship. And so she'd put on her Lycra hot pants and I'd put on my Lycra book cover and uh, I would go and lie at the beachfront and read anthropology textbooks while she went rollerblading. And that was, you know, so we had this conflict because she's a morning person and I'm definitely not a morning person. So we had to learn how to negotiate that. What about, uh, who, who here loves admin? Just crickets. I'm getting two hands raised to heaven from Peter McCallan up the back there, uh, Sarah Hampshire as well. Yeah, what about these people that like organising? What about people who like spreadsheets? <laughs> I don't understand those people who are in deep need of therapy that like admin and like, because I don't like admin. Um, we have a wonderful team in our church. Our staff team are just amazing individuals, really, really brilliant. But one of the problems for them is me. Um, and like... <laughs> Basically, I am like the senile old granddad of the church and the team here just have to sort of grab me and stop me from catch setting things on fire and uh, bring me into a room and hold me hostage until we answer the organising questions and fill out the spreadsheets and all that sort of stuff. And I'm running up the walls, I'm trying everything to get out of that situation, you know, I'm doing jujitsu and judo throws to get out the door and they're just like locking me in to do it. Um, and so, but that's potential for conflict, right? You know, if you're a big picture person and you like vision, but if you're a detail person, then the visionary really drives you nuts. Isn't that true? And all of our staff team said? They're too, they know they'll get in big trouble if they say the wrong thing. 69% of it is unsolvable. Okay. So what that means is that you have to have an adequate plan for reconcile and resolving conflicted moments because if 69% of it is unsolvable, you do the math and only a very small portion will ever go away. And in fact, this study has been replicated numerous times and no one's ever come up with a smaller figure than 69% of conflict in a relationship being unsolvable, okay? So that means it's a fixture of our lives. It's a fixture of our relationship. So what we can do is we can just never talk to each other again. Have you heard about the married couple? They uh, made it to their 50th wedding anniversary. And everyone was like, wow, that's amazing, that's amazing. How did you guys get there? And he said, well, for the first 10 years, uh, she talked and I listened. And then the second uh, 10 years, you know, she, uh, I talked and she listened. And then for the remainder of the period after that, we both yelled and the neighbours listened. And that was how they, uh, that's how they survived their relationship. Listen, how we learn to do conflict and live together is a paramount skill. In true relationships, 
actually have an adequate way of allowing for conflict to happen. Conflict will happen and therefore how we respond to each other when it happens is true. So there are three, con there are three questions that I think you should leave here tonight within your mind that help you have an adequate plan for dealing with conflict. Three questions for resolving conflicts. Here's the first question. Can I get over it and move on? These questions you ask yourself. Please don't ask someone else these questions when you're in conflict. For all of you married people out there, when a marriage conflict arises, it doesn't really help to say, can't you just get over it and move on? Has anybody here ever noticed that, like made that wise observation? What is the painful feeling of a fork in my eyeball right now? Oh, because <laughs> I asked my wife if she can get over it. I'm picking up a vibe here. Maybe she can't get over it. She's never stabbed me with a fork in the eyeball. Only the thigh because it's hidden under clothing. <laughs> can I get over it and move on? What that really means is can I'm, I'm, I'm going to have a momentary offense. I'm going to have a momentary hiccup. I'm going to be annoyed. I'm going to be angry. And that could be for a variety of reasons. Sometimes it's because people in my life behave badly towards me. It's your, your opportunity to give me some sympathy. You guys are hopeless. Now we've got to do conflict resolution. Um, so, so sometimes people behave badly towards me and I've got to make a choice. Can I overlook it? Can I get past it? Can I get over it? And I should actually not be a petty person. Isn't that true? I should be relatively robust so that when you unwittingly do do something that's offensive or hurtful or, or stupid, that I could be a gracious, forgiving person and say, ah, just let it go through to the wicketkeeper, Ben. The first question is, can I get over? Can I forgive and forget and move on? And if the answer is yes to that, then I don't really need to go and make a counselling appointment with you and say, hey, listen, Charmaine, the other day I was driving down the street in Alice Springs. Now, it had to be you because there's only two cars ever on the road in Alice Springs. And uh, you cut me off in traffic and that, that really hurt my feelings. Really hurt my feelings, right? I don't need a counselling appointment with Charmaine to, uh, to, to get over the fact that maybe she cut in front of me or someone cut in front of me or whatever. And if it's most of the people in this room, I've seen you guys driving, you don't resolve anyway, you just do the American peace symbol out the window. And uh, it's um, obviously had a 50% off sale and uh, you uh, resolve it that way. But the truth is, listen, there's a really petty, petty um, tradition within Christian circles that we think that resolving conflict means I have to tell you every time that I'm upset with you. And I've got to make sure that I just share my heart with you. Okay, so have you ever, ever heard one of these pathetic conversations where somebody has to have a meeting with you to tell you that they forgive you for something that you didn't even know that you did? <laughs> Pastor Ben, I just want you to know that I forgive you for being the world's greatest jerk. I forgive, just want you to know I forgive you. I don't hold anything against it that you're the biggest jerk I've ever met, you know. And uh, it's just so, it's so, so liberating, isn't it, to know that I can walk in that level of forgiveness from people. Okay, so we're not talking about that. We're not talking about becoming the world's pettiest person that you have to turn every molehill into a mountain in your life and have conflict resolution, hours-long conversations with people because you're oversensitive or petty. Does that make sense? And how you know that you're not oversensitive or petty is because you ask yourself, can't I just get over this and move on? Can I get over this and move on? Okay, what is the scale of this conflict? And shouldn't I just have a generally gracious and forgiving outlook? Now, and I, I'm talking to myself as well, because as a church pastor, you wouldn't believe the dumb things people say to you on a day-to-day -day basis. You really wouldn't. It's like, you know, one person loves your sermon, the other person thinks you're the Antichrist, the other person thinks your mother's the Antichrist. Like, it's just terrible what people say out there. So you can't live your life just like, you know, getting offended all the time and getting hurt and having me conflict resolution meetings with everybody so the first question is can i 
get over it and move on? That's the first question. Now, if the answer is yes, you should definitely do that. You should definitely do that. And you should have a look at Scripture and work out really how, what's the scale of forgivingness that you should have and the graciousness that you should have to give the person a free pass and let them go and not hold some offence against them, particularly if it is a petty issue. But sometimes you can't forgive and forget and move on. And particularly what happens is it's very difficult for you to forgive and forget and to get over it if there's a pattern in your relationship. And that means that somebody will regularly make the same offence in your life. Somebody will regularly do the same thing. Somebody will, their pattern, their repeated engagement around a certain infringement of your boundaries or your personhood will wound you on a regular basis. And then you start saying, oh, I just can't get past this anymore. I just can't forgive this anymore. I just can't put this down anymore. This is really creating a barrier in our relationship in that case you definitely have to resolve that conflict resolve that conflict you definitely have to at that point ask yourself the question well am i a follower of jesus now if you're not a follower of jesus i don't know really how to help you in terms of conflict resolution because if you're not a follower of jesus then you are bound by the rules of the highest authority in your life and then most of the time that's you So I just don't know. It's been 20 years since I've been following Jesus. So I can't remember how conflict resolution was done that way. But I can tell you that when you're a disciple of Jesus, the question is, can I handle this conflict like a disciple of Jesus? And Jesus taught on conflict, didn't he? The early church codified Jesus' teachings on conflict into this phrase that they called the rule of Christ, the rule of Christ. And the rule of Christ, you can find it in a couple of places in the New Testament, but prominently in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 18. That's the 18th chapter of Matthew and verses 15 to 18. You've probably heard of it a few times before. This is the rule of Christ. This is the early church's code for how we resolve conflicts. I'll just quickly read it to you. It says, if your brother or sister sins against you, go and point out their fault. Just between the two of you. Oh, oh, hang on, hang on. Did you hear that bit? If you've got a problem with someone, go have a chat to them. Just keeping it between the two of you. You know what I'm saying? Well, I'm not saying it. Jesus is saying it. How many times in life do we fail to do that? Pretty, pretty regularly, hey? And actually, it's incredibly divisive in relationships, whether it's your marriage partnership, whether it's a family, whether it's a church community, whether it's your social circle. The failure to follow the rule of Christ is singularly one of the most damaging forces within the church because the world looks at us and our squabbles and our pettiness and our unforgiveness and our divisions and our strife and our gossip and says, why would we follow Jesus? You guys can't even do it. And that's why the way we actually deal with conflict as followers of Jesus is part of our witness to a watching world, isn't it? And I find that a deeply challenging thought. Jesus said, go and just talk about, talk um, just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. Hear that phrase, won them over. Won them over, won them over, won them over. We like to use this phrase in our church, winsomeness, winsomeness. Winsomeness means that what we are trying to do is we are trying to create a dynamic in our midst where you would willingly do something because you want to do it because the something that has to be done resonates with you. And so you would willingly and graciously do it of your own choice rather than being coerced or bullied or manipulated or made to do it. That's why it's not common for people to get up in our pulpits and yell at you and pound all this obligation on you and all that type of thing because actually one of the things we believe is we believe what the proverb said that he who wins a soul is wise and winning a soul is the act of um you know let's call it inborn persuasion where a person's internal motivations are recruited that they would do something of their own free will instead of feeling like they're being bullied into it or made to do it or manipulated to do it who thinks that's a good way to live your life 
we awake? Well, it is a good way to win your life because that is um, honouring you as a human with agency, honouring the fact that you are free and you can do anything you want, and so we want you to do it when you want to do it, not just because we are trying to bully you or make you do it and manipulate you, which then makes us a cult. And Jesus shows that the motivation in the rule of Christ is that what I'm seeking to do when I resolve a conflict is I'm seeking to win a brother or a sister. I'm not seeking to win an argument. I'm seeking to win someone over. It's a great phrase. I think you should think about it. Next time you're having a conflict with someone, think about what is my goal here? Is my goal to win? Is my goal to be right? Is my goal to prove a point? Is my goal to win a battle? No. My goal, according to the rule of Christ, is to win someone over. Win someone over. It's a recognition that there has been a fracture in our relationship and that we have somehow had our relationship broken and that needs to be healed. We need to win each other back again. And that's the motivation in the rule of Christ for how we handle conflict. And he says, but if they don't listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Now, the early church was the first group in human history to practice this thing based on the rule of Christ called conflict mediation conflict mediation. Actually, mediation is a whole field in uh, human resources now. It's a whole field in law in Queensland. I don't know what it's like in the Northern Territory, but in Queensland, you can't get a divorce unless you've first gone to mediation. The court wants to know, did you see a family law mediator before you turned up to the courtroom to get a divorce? Isn't that interesting? A mediator is a third person who will help parties who are separated, who help parties who are in division, will help them both objectively look at the circumstances. Might like to think of them as a referee, someone who will help, hang on, hang on, guys, we're getting a bit crazy, let's just refocus the discussion. And actually, in the rule of Christ, Jesus said, sometimes that reconciliation, sometimes conflict resolution is so difficult, sometimes the wounds are deep and we're both just not thinking straight and, you know, we don't know how to see it and we're both definitely not objective because we're hurt or we're offended or whatever. And so sometimes it's not going to be possible for us to heal our rift and us to fix the issue. And what we should do is instead of walking away, which is what our world does, right? Our world treats people and relationships as disposable. They're disposable things. If someone annoys you, chuck them. If someone offends you, chuck them. If someone wounds you, chuck them. And Jesus says, that is not what the cross did in human history. The cross is a demonstration in human history that people and relationships are valuable and they are not disposable. And so when I have an issue, what I have to do is seek to win a person back to my life. And if it's not possible, then I have to bring someone else. I have to get someone else involved. And actually, so many times I've seen wonderful resolutions to conflicts when two Christian people who've had a very difficult history, maybe it's a leadership conflict, maybe it's a work conflict, maybe it's a business fallout, maybe it's a relationship thing, maybe it's a, a, a ministry team difference. And they could chuck the relationship like the world does. And you and I have to be aware that we carry that inside us. We carry the world inside us, friends. It's discipled us our whole lives. And now we're learning not to follow after the pattern of this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, aren't we? And we're learning, we're relearning people and relationships are not disposable. And sometimes there has to be some awkward discussions for things to be healed. But the point of the awkward discussion is healing, not victory. Some of us, our relationships are tainted in marriages because we don't have the capacity to restore each other because we just want to win. And conflict result devolves to a win-lose equation. Jesus says, well, actually, what you're trying to do is you're trying to win the person. You're not trying to win the argument. And if it doesn't work, if you can't win them, if you can't win each other, if you can't reconcile, if you can't get back on the same page, then what you need to do is you need to bring someone else in, man. You need help. You need help of a wise person. 
He says, hey, if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen, even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector, which I think is so funny in the mind of Jesus, because all Jesus does with pagans and tax collectors is seek to win them back to the kingdom way. Um, it's pretty cool. So that's the rule of Christ. So here's the first question. Can I get over it and move on? If the answer is yes, move on. If the answer is no, you need to resolve it. Here's the second question. Have I followed Jesus' teaching? Have I followed Jesus' teaching? I've talked to you about this before, so I'm just going to make this segment really quick. But the opposite of doing that is the way that you often see it done. It's this thing called triangulation, triangulation. So, uh, Danielle, why don't you come up here? And um, Cam and Belle, why don't you guys come up here as well? Now, here's how unhealthy conflict resolution, well, it's not really conflict resolution, it's how unhealthy conflict works. Here's how triangulation works. I'm just going to have to make sure we stay in the, um, in the camera shot there. Good, 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 good. Just go over that way more, Danielle. Okay, and Cam, you can come over this way more. And Belle, you can just come into there. Yeah, yeah, there you go. There we go. Come this way, handsome. How's it going, mate? Yeah. You comfortable? Yeah, you all right? Not really. You need a back... <laughs> Need a back rub or a Pepsi or something? Uh, both okay, good. You're not getting it. Okay, so, um, so, so this is what triangulation is. This is what triangulation is. This is Danny. Say hi, Danny. Now, now, um, Danny and Cameron just had a little bit of a tiff. <laughs> Don't provoke her, mate. I've lived with her for 21 years. I know what she's capable of. <laughs> okay, so they've had a little bit of a tiff, right? Now, according to the rule of Christ, if they've had a little bit of tiff, then what they should do is that um, one of them should go to the other one and seek to win them back, okay? But these guys aren't going to operate according to the law of Christ because they're both angry and they're both hurt. So here's what Danny's going to do. Danny, she's going to go to her friend, Belmel. Right? And she's going to tell Belmel, can you believe what Cameron did? Can you... I, I, I'm just... No, no, actually, but... But if she's Christian, she's going to do it a certain way, ready? I just need to share my heart with you. <laughs> I just need to share my heart with you. And then, I oh know, she's spiritual, so because she's spiritual, she's going she's to say, hey, be praying for Cameron. <laughs> yeah, that's what it is. This is just a prayer request. Be praying for Cameron, because Cameron needs prayers. Because Cameron is it. So she's going to go and, and what she's going to do is she's going to poison Cameron's reputation and she's going to build up, she's going to make a case in her own mind and she's going to bring that case and prosecute it, not to Cameron, but she's going to prosecute it behind Cameron's back to another party. That's the first stage of dysfunctional conflict because what we want to do is we want to strike out at someone and she is not going to strike out at Cameron because she's not married to Cameron. She's married to me. She's going to strike out at me. Anyway, that's a whole nother story though. Um, <laughs> Okay, so she's not going to strike out at Cameron, but she's going to use all of that pent-up energy and rage to war against Cameron, but she will do it behind his back to Belinda, okay? So, by the way, Danielle's really nice. This is only an illustration. She would never do that. <sighs> and then what's going to happen is phase two is going to kick in, okay? And Belinda, but Belinda's a pretty good person. Who, who knows Belinda? She's an amazing person, Okay. But she feels conflicted because she maybe deep in her soul knows, oh, Dan, you shouldn't be talking to me about this. But she doesn't want to, you know, schism the relationship between her and Danny. And also now she's seen that Danny talks about you behind your back. It's very hard for her to know what to do. So she's decided she's going to play peacemaker. Put on your crown, draw your sword, Belinda. Okay? Jump on your white horse. <laughs> Let's go. 
We're going to rescue. Come on. Okay. So what Belinda does is she goes to camera and she's taken it upon herself now. My friends, John and Yoko broke up the band. My friends, only us oldies get that. My, my friends are fighting, so I need to fix it. And so she's going. And now she can do it a number of ways and all of them are dysfunctional. I want you to hear this. All of them are dysfunctional. Here's way number one. She's going to supplicate with Cameron and very lovingly tell him, you need to like fix this stuff with Danielle. She said, come mm, do it. Look at her pretending like she doesn't know how to triangulate. Yeah, we don't buy it for a second. Yeah, she's going to be like, you know, come on, Cam. Yeah, what are you doing? It's, it's not a moment for you to put your hands all over her, you filthy animal. He's, she's going to supplicate, you know, you need to fix this with Danielle, okay? You need to fix this with Danielle, okay? Okay, that's, that's, that's dysfunctional level one, supplication. Come on, man, I'm here. I just want you to know Danielle's really hurt. You know, it seems like you're playing the good guy, doesn't it? But what she wouldn't be aware of, this is still dysfunctional behavior. Okay, but she's, let's say that we catch on a bad day, just create some distance there. Get your hands off him. So, okay, here's phase number two. She's, she's going to take up Danielle's cause and she is filled with righteous anger. Draw your sword, Belmel. Swing. Okay, now, come over here and now you're going to give him a piece of your you're going to fix him. Come on, give him a piece of your mind. Fix him. No, do it. Do it. <laughs> He's saying, come on, you do it at home. I <laughs> ah, see how it is. Hey, pick on someone your own size, Belinda. Okay, so she's going to fix him. She's going to... Okay. It's still dysfunctional. She's going to go to war carrying someone else's offence. Okay. Now, there's another way... There's another way that it's still triangulation, but let's make it into like a, you know, an oblong or a dodecahedron or something like this. And so I'm over here, I'm over here. And, 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 and she's done that, and guess what, guess what he's going to do? He's going to come to the loving arms of his pastor. <laughs> from, and be loved from 1.5 metres away. You guys can take your seats, thank you. Except, Daniel, you can just stay there for a second. Um, so, so what's going to happen is we're going to go to everyone and we're going to think, and then we're going to have little parties. There's people on my side, there's people on their side, there's people that want to kill me, there's people that want to kill them, there's people that want to supplicate and fix it because they're rescuers. You see what happens? And what we've done is because we've failed to follow the rule of Christ, we have introduced pollution into our relationships. We've introduced pollution into our relationships. And then Cameron's walking down the street and someone's like, hey, what a great guy is Cameron. It's like, oh, well, yeah, well, that's not what I heard. I heard him and Danielle had a bingle in the car. You know, you know what I'm saying? So now we've got pollution going on. Man, you should see how destructive that is in human communities. But you know that because you hate it when it's done to you. Isn't that true? You hate it when it's done to your friend. So listen, I think a healthy and mature choice is always that we have a triangulation-free zone. Okay? How you handle it is when someone's talking to you, you say, oh, hang on, hang on. You, you have spoken to them, right? You have spoken to them, right? Oh, no, 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 I can't speak to them. Oh, you can't? No, no, I think it's more like you, you won't. You won't speak to them. Big difference, hey, between I can't and I won't. Most of the time when we say I can't, what we really mean is I won't. We've had people leave our church because they had problems with our staff, one of our leaders, and they came and sat in my office and berated that leader behind their back. And I'm a loving pastor, so I let them get it all off their chest, knowing this is a consequence-free environment. And then at the end I said, now, you have spoken to them about this, have you? which I knew they hadn't. No. Oh, but you're going to? No. Oh, because I, 
Well, look, if you're scared to speak to them or you think it's not going to go well, we can bring them in right now and we can have that chat together. I'll be that third person if this is not able to, something that you're able to do on your own. No. I said to them, you know, I think you have to realise that this is a dysfunctional pattern of behaviour that you're demonstrating. And actually, no matter what offence they've caused or what failures they've got or, or what weaknesses they've got, your way of handling this is actually, in, that's revealing the dysfunction that you have too. So I don't doubt that they might be dysfunctional. I know our staff, man. I don't doubt they might be dysfunctional, but your way of handling this, that's a little bit dysfunctional. That's going to hurt our community. It's going to hurt your relationship. It's certainly going to hurt them. And so I think you need to resolve it in a healthy way. And so you know what they did? As a human being made in God's image, they left the church and told everybody on the way out that Pastor Ben was really mean to them and called them dysfunctional. <laughs> I promise, if you sit in my office exhibiting dysfunctional behaviours, I'll love you, I'll be your friend, but I'll always tell you if you're dysfunctional. And if you're sitting in my office and I'm being dysfunctional, you're allowed to tell me that I'm dysfunctional as well because that's how relationships work in this church. We have to get good at resolving conflicts and fixing issues. Now I want to switch. That is about conflict resolution in general, okay? Can I get over it and move on? If yes, I should. If no, second question, have I followed the teaching of Jesus, okay? And it's very, very important. Now there are some things that jam our capacity to follow the teaching of Jesus. And here it is. Why don't you come here, Danny? This is my beautiful wife, Danielle. We've been married for 21 years. I know she doesn't look that old, but she moisturises. Okay, so, Dan, <laughs> just come this way, come this way. No, wait, wait, yeah, that's good. Yeah, okay, just hold that. Now, attachment works this way in a relationship. All relationships work on the basis of attachment, okay? So just stay right there. Yep, attachment. Attachment is what joins us together, okay? And now, as you can see, let's say that um, we just meet second we just meet we don't know each other from a bar of soap we're, we're um, you know we're new but um we, we meet and we have a positive interaction we have a positive interaction hello how are you doing jeez you look a mighty cute in them jeans okay and so she so what happens is a positive interaction builds a thread of attachment a thread of attachment now the problem with a thread of attachment is it's not really much is it it's not really much and in fact you know it's okay for this thing because we're we're just new at it but this is not going to like be able, this level of attachment is not going to be able to like tow a truck, is it? Yeah, if we try to tow a truck with this, what's going to happen? It's going to snap, okay? And so what has to happen is, is we have to have another good... So, so we've had another good interaction and we've had another kind interaction, we've had another loving interaction and, um, okay, and now, oh, look at this, and then there's reciprocation in our relationship and there's another one and there's an, that's, that, that, that's a good one, that's a good one. And so watch, we're going to have another one. And relationship reciprocity, this is, this is very important that we understand this relation. This is why relationships take two things. They take time and they take proximity. And then if it's going to be like this, they also take vulnerability because you can't build attachment without vulnerability, okay? The only way you can do it is if you're so dysfunctional that it's not reciprocal, but you keep attaching to people. But that will usually be because you're a broken person, um, okay? Because in true relationships, there's reciprocity. We give and receive love and intimacy and connection and, and enjoyment and compliments. And, gee, you know, I like your nails. Oh, yeah, of course, they're nice. Oh, yeah. Do you like my shoes? Okay, then, here you go. <laughs> okay, so this is what happens over time, is positive interactions over time, look at what they start to build. They start to build a web, okay? Now, am I closer or further away than before from being able to construct something that would tow a truck? 
Okay. Have you ever seen those ropes that they get big ships come into? I know there's these things in other parts of the world called oceans. And then they have these things in the oceans called ships. And then the ships have these things called ports. And when a ship pulls up to a port, they tie it up so it doesn't float away with a... Okay. And the rope is simply lots and lots of these. Okay. This ain't going to hold the ship in place. But if you get lots of these and you, and you braid them together over time, then you get it. We finally worked this out. We didn't even practice this. This is good. But see, it's like we're a seamless team. After being together for 21 years, it's like a mind melt. We can read each other like a book. No, Danielle, you're doing it wrong. So, um, okay, can I just get you to hold that? You too? Yeah, is that all right? Oh, Jesus, good, Danielle. You're incredible. You're incredible. Your hair looks nice. Okay, so over time, what happens is we have all these positive interactions. Now, okay, just hold tight, Danielle, all right? Now, you pull that way, but then conflict comes in. Conflict comes in. Now, is this, how likely is this rope likely to break? Not likely. I mean, you know, it came from Ikea, so we don't know. It came from Ikea, we had to weave it ourselves. Um, it's not likely, okay? But then sometimes, so this is, in conflict science, Pressure in a relationship, okay, pressure in a relationship tests connections. How connected are we? Oh, you left your, you left your stuff on the bench, did you? Yeah, right, right, okay. But if we do conflict well, then watch what happens. Oh, you left the stuff on the bench, did you? Oh, yeah. Well, I forgive you, baby, I forgive you. You see what happens? Is because the rope of attachment is strong... It'll be tested in conflict, okay? And this is important for all relationships. It's not just intimate ones, but intimate ones are the ones where, you know, you want to be close, if you know what I'm saying. So, so, so it'll be tested, but if it's tested and resolved, we come closer, okay? It, uh, <laughs> wait till we get home, woman. Has anyone got a fire extinguisher handy? It's getting hot in here. Okay, now watch what happens every now and then a significant conflict arises. If it's significant enough, okay, it doesn't stretch and it doesn't test, it severs something. It severs something. And that thing is severed until it's repaired or until time and intimacy... You're wrecking everything for everyone, Danielle. You don't hold that. Just hold that, that string. That's it. Good. Perfect. You're back. I love you again now. Okay. <laughs> it has to be repaired through further kindness and reconciliation and through further give and take. Okay. So listen, most of us, we, we suffer from a, um, a, an illusion when it comes to relationships. And the illusion is that this is never going to happen. Okay. And if this never happens... Man, you're amazing. You must be like Mother Teresa living in a bubble or something, I guess. But, like, especially if you live with me, is this going to happen a lot, Danielle? You'd be like, what are you saying? Danielle, they're recording. Okay, it's going to happen a lot. This would happen. This, this rope gets pulled on and tugged on daily, right? But here's the thing. This, after 21 years, is got a lot of fibers, a lot of fibers. And there's a lot of history, isn't there, Danielle? There's a lot of doing this, that, this, isn't there? You see why I have to be so resilient? Um, because <laughs> Daniel just severs the connections anytime something goes wrong. So I'm telling you, man, passive, aggressive, much. Okay, so, so that happens, okay. Now, if you're a dysfunctional person, 
why this is problematic is because our relationship is 21 years old. It has had 20 years to get thread after thread after thread. And even though Danielle chucks it away every now and then, like she just did before, right? A conflict can happen and maybe something will be severed, but we have a history. And our history of the quality of our attachment means that even if something got severed, none of us are going anywhere because there's plenty of other strands, there's plenty of other history, there's other intimacy, there's other kindness, there's history. So we know that when it gets severed and we can identify that, man, we have to fix this back up again. We don't don't want this, okay? Now, the demise of a relationship is simply that when more gets severed, then gets restored. Oh, we forgot our anniversary, eh? Oh, I wouldn't go visit your mum with you. Lots of things get cut when you say that, you know. <laughs> That's why Daniel don't get the scissors. Um, okay, so, so, so things get severed. But the quality of our attachment means that we have time and we have process in our relationship to fix what's been getting severed. See, my, re- my analogy's starting to break down and it's all your fault, Daniel. I just want you to know that. Okay, we have time to fix it and we do, and it ends up still strong. But we keep playing the game, we keep playing the reconciliation game. Because here's the thing about a resolved conflict that changes a relationship if it's resolved that every resolved conflict strengthens the relationship. And you know that, don't you? Because you've had that experience in your life. Remember when, if you're in an intimate relationship, you didn't have a fight for ages because you're on your best behavior and you were too scared to have a fight, and then you finally had a fight and then you made up, and how great was it making up? And now you have extra security in the relationship because you realize that she's not going to leave me just because I put a cup on the bench or something. We can have that conversation, all right? Now, if you're a dysfunctional person, two things happen. Number one, that almost every conflict threatens to do this. Almost every conflict, okay? Because when you're dysfunctional, you don't recognize that this is conflict in this part of our life, but there's still many other great things about our relationship. So if you're the type of person that loses a relationship every time you have a conflict with someone, there's two explanations, but they're both dysfunctional. The first one is this, that you're an all or nothing, win or lose person, and that every time something comes up, snip, now we've got nothing, and I'm going to have to go and rebuild. That's the first diagnosis. But here's the second diagnosis, and this is probably more likely and probably more common. It's possible that maybe your relationships only, yeah, maybe that your relationships only look like that in the first place because you might struggle with intimacy, maybe you're dysfunctional, maybe you're not open and don't invite other people into the open area. So you have very minimal attachment with people. Now you look at the difference, right? We just have to have, let's test, let's test the relationship, Danielle, let's test, okay? It doesn't take much. I can't hang on, I can't hang on, okay? You can grab a seat. Hey, wait. Take your attachment from me. <laughs> Thank you, Danielle. Okay. So attachments are fibers between each other, okay? And every conflict tests and strains a relationship. But the more I work to resolve, the more I work to be intimate, the more I work to heal, the more I work to love. And that's what I do when I'm not conflicting. It's the kindnesses, it's the interactions, it's putting emotional deposits in the bank account of the relationship. All of those things build attachment, and that means that conflict is less catastrophic. Does that make sense? 
So when a person follows the rule of Christ, what they're actually doing is they're saying to someone, hey, I reckon we snipped one of our fibers, man, and I don't want to keep snipping fibers with you because I want a really great relationship. Therefore, could we talk about this in here? And what I'm doing is I'm offering them a thread. Now, it's going to be up to them whether they can take that thread or not. And Maybe we need to sit there and unravel some things and untangle some things and have some conversations before we unravel it. But I would tell you, and Danielle and I have been married for 21 years, and especially you know the last um, number of years has been incredibly peaceful and harmonious because we've learned, we did not know it when we were younger because we we're a product of two dysfunctional families where as soon as anything happens in those dysfunctional families, bam, the ropes get snipped. But we've learned, especially now that we've got children in the house, we've learned to have a home where we are giving and receiving connection in a healthy, proper way. doesn't mean there's no conflict. Is there much conflict in our house, Danielle? She's not being honest. What about you, India? Is there much conflict in our house? Does mum and dad ever fight? <laughs> she doesn't want to throw me under the bus. We do. We do have conflict in our house. We have teenagers. Of course we have conflict in our house. Um, okay. So that's the second question. Have I followed the rule of Christ because I want to set them up? Here's the third question, and I'm going to be quick, but this is going to be like a protein shake, okay? A protein shake is only like in 250 ml cup and you drink it, but it does you good for the whole rest of the day. You know what I'm saying? So I'm going to go quick on this one. Here's the third question. Am I conflicting through the lens of the fall? Am I conflicting through the lens of the fall? Genesis chapter 3 gives us an archetypal narrative about what is wrong with this world. I'm going to read it for you with my new large print Bible. It says this, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree of the garden? First problem, distorting God's word. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. Second problem, she didn't know what God said well enough to use it as an adequate defense mechanism from the crafty wiles of the chaos serpent. The woman said to the serpent, we said that, okay, um, verse 4, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. That's the temptation in all human lives, isn't it? That Not that I serve God, that he's God, but that actually I replace God and I'm God. Instead of reflecting God, it's greatly tempting to replace God. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. That's problem number three is that Adam is just passive in this process. He's right there with her. He was there when God said to him, don't which fruit, which tree you can eat and which tree you can't touch. And he's just there, a passive spectator as chaos begins to invade his relationship. Desirable for wisdom, then their eyes, they ate it, and then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together, and they made coverings for themselves. That's the essence of the human fall, is that we are supposed to live these vulnerable lives, fully creative, fully open, fully open, and naked before God in our transparency, but what happens as soon as they eat from the fruit they shouldn't eat from, shame comes in. They invent sophisticated ways to hiding away. Now they can't be vulnerable, they can't be vulnerable with God, and they can't be vulnerable with each other. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. 
crucial point because in the previous chapter of Genesis, God has given the trees of the garden and all of the plants and all the leaves uh, to Adam and Eve as, Eve as gifts. That is, God gave it to them. And he said he gave it to them because one, it is good for food and two, it is pleasing to the eye. That is function and aesthetics. That is these wonderful gifts and some are nurturing and some are just enjoyable. And they were God's good gifts. And then what happens to a couple when they are ashamed? What happens to humans when they're in sin? That is that God's good gifts become camouflage to us. And instead of enjoying them or nourishing our world with them, we hide ourselves away behind it. And that's an easy transition to make, isn't it? Where the good gifts that God gave us obscure our identity and we then hide behind those gifts. They heard God walking in the cool of the day and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? And he answered and said, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid and God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit. <laughs> there, see that? He's just snipped a little cord, hasn't he? First of all, she's like bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Now she's, you know, that woman that you gave me? She gave me some fruit and I ate it. And the Lord said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I'll make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate the fruit from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Listen to this. And Adam named his wife Eve because she would become mother of all the living. Now, I want you to think about this because a few weeks ago when we talked about marriage, we talked about the fact that God had all the animals file past Adam, didn't he? To see what Adam would name them. And Adam named them all and gave them their functions. And then God makes the point in Genesis 2. And that amongst all of the animals that filed past Adam, not one suitable companion for him was found. And so God made a woman and presented her to Adam. And what is noteworthy in the story is that God made him a woman, a companion, a helper, a partner. And that she was distinct from the animals, not to be treated like the animals. And that is why Adam doesn't give her a name in Genesis chapter 2. But Genesis chapter 3, the fall, everything that has gone wrong with the cosmos because humans reject the rule and reign of God and are determined to replace God instead of reflect God as his image bearers. And there are some consequences. And the first consequence we see in the story is their shame. They hide away from God and they hide away from each other. Adam goes that way, Eve goes that way, and they sew for themselves fig leaf armor. Second consequence for the story is that their relationship with God is shattered, isn't it? And this amazing curse has come into the creation that we can see, if we're really thoughtful humans, we can see reflected at every level of human society. These horrible, horrible things. And right at the outset, here we see intimate relationship conflict born through the lens of the fall. Now Adam names Eve. In other words, now as people... We just treat each other like animals. It's true, isn't it? It's true with the abuse. It's true with the dysfunction. It's true with unresolved conflict. It's true with murder. It's true with depravity that we see in planet Earth. That the lens of the fall means suddenly we forget that people are human and we begin to dehumanize each other. So watch how the lens of the fall creates conflict patterns, okay? Here's the first one, shame. Shame is concealment. 
I was naked, I was unashamed, now I have to cover up, I can't be the real me anymore. The second one is distancing. Adam says, that woman that you gave me, she's the one. One minute, you know, when he first sees her, he's like, woman, she is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. I'm going to be one with her. I'm going to live with her. Then bam, as soon as something's happened, that woman you gave me, God. He goes from being bone of my bone to that thing over there. Adam has distanced himself, hasn't he? He's distanced himself. He's severed the ties. He's snipped the connection. And then, of course, the third dysfunctional strand in the lens of the fall is that we play the blame game. She made me do it. You've heard the classic joke, right? Adam blamed Eve, Eve blamed the snake, the snake didn't have a leg to stand on. That woman, she made me do it. The woman, oh, that snake, he made me do it, okay? The blame game. That is, now we deny our agency, and instead of taking responsibility for things that are going wrong in the world around us, things that are going wrong in our relationships, we are blinded by the blame game, and it's everybody else's fault, the blame game. Well, the blame game leads to some of these elements of the curse that you see between the humans, between Adam and Eve, these cursed conditions began. And here's the first one. A new battle for power and control is introduced to relationships. God says, man, uh, uh, now what's going to happen is your desire will be for him and he will rule over you. It's the battle of the sexes. Have a look at human history. I studied social science at university and the battle of sexes is a significant feature in human conflict, isn't it? Who's going to be in charge? Men and women equal? We don't want someone to be equal. We want to be on top. We want to we get back on top. Okay, no. We, the, the unity that is supposed to exist between people has been fractured. Now we're playing power and control games. I want to be in charge. No, I want to be in charge. I want to be more important. No, I want to be more important. I want to make decisions. No, I want to make decisions. And the fall, the lens of the fall has fractured Adam and Eve's relationship so that now, instead of collaborating together, they are competing together. Who's going to get on top? Who's going to be in charge? The lens of the fall means now it's a wrestle for power and control. Here's the fifth one, family dysfunction. It's represented in God saying, you will experience pain in childbearing. And Gordon Wenham, who's probably one of the world's foremost biblical studies experts in the, in the book of Genesis, and especially in the first few chapters of Genesis, probably one of the most cited Bible commentators on the face of the planet, he makes the point when he says this, that we over-extract meaning from the text when we think it only means the fact that, well, it hurts when women have babies. And it does hurt, doesn't it, girls? A little bit? Anyone want to admit that? I mean, it's not as bad as man flu, but it's up there, okay? It's up there. Um, and so, you know, the explanation, I guess, traditionally has been, well, that's why it hurts when you have a baby because Eve sinned. But really, Gordon Wenham makes the point, it's actually about the pain in family and the pain and the dysfunction and the, um, the ease with which that children, parent and children relationships are fractured. That's really what Gordon Wenham says is what God is saying when he says, your, your, I will increase your pains in childbearing. That is, now family dysfunction has been unleashed in planet Earth. And here's the last one, separation. It's separation from each other and it's separation from God as well. Adam and Eve's relationship, you can see if you read the story intelligently, their relationship is fractured, but not just with each other. Now their relationship with God. In fact, their relationship with the created cosmos itself is fractured. And now it was a gift where they were given for food or because it's good to the eye. But now you'll only survive by the sweat of your brow. Now it is hard labor and toil instead of something good to be enjoyed. And why I'm saying this to you is because sometimes when we do conflict, all of these qualities, these six qualities from the lens of the fall invade our relationships. Let's talk about shame. Shame says you're unlovable, you're unworthy, you're unacceptable unless you perform. Shame says I'll love you if you put an elaborate fig leaf on, if you performance manage, 
if you earn my love, if you buy my approval. Love is earned, weakness is hidden. Never admit guilt, never admit fault. Require everyone else to wear a fig leaf as well. Require everyone else to keep up appearances. Don't let anyone know you're broken. Don't let anyone know you're naked. Don't let anyone know you have a fault. Life is now dress-ups. Can you see the potential for conflict when we live that way together? Life is dress-ups. This is exhausting and it creates depression and it creates burnout and it creates an incredible amount of loneliness because no matter how many people we know, if life is facade management for us, we are incredibly alone. The lens of the fall. This takes on the appearance of behaviours like manipulation and secrecy, the inability to be intimate with people, facade management, unhealthy conflicts because we are not transparent and we're not aware of what's really going on. We don't show ourselves to the world. We don't show ourselves to others. We don't reveal fully who we are. We don't operate out of pure motives. We hide them away under our fig leaves, even from ourselves. Isn't that true? And then we shame others. We use shame as a weapon. Shame is a mechanism to win or to wound. I can use shame to put you back in your place. I can use shame to get you back when you hurt me. Acceptance is based on how elaborate our fig leaf is and how good our performance is and how concealed our faults are. Shame, it's horrible, isn't it? It's so binding. You know, in Brisbane, I was preaching on shame and an 81-year-old man came out on a Sunday night at a young adult service. Actually, it was a young adult rally in the north of Brisbane and uh, this 81-year-old man came out he came out and he was shaking like this and he began to talk to me and say that his whole life he couldn't play with his kids he couldn't play sport in school he couldn't even you know like when his kids were babies get down on the floor and play because he felt so stupid he felt so ashamed he felt like everybody thought he was an idiot and so he lived this whole life constrained and in a personal prison he said it affected every relationship that he's had when his kids had children his grandkids he couldn't even get on the floor and play with them because he felt so ashamed drove his life we prayed together and he said at the end of it, for the first time in 81 years, he felt like it was what it was like to live shame-free. Pretty crazy, hey? It's so powerful. Another woman there, she was 31, and she came out and she said, Pastor Ben, we prayed for a little while and we saw God move in her life. And then afterwards, I was talking to her and her husband. And she said, I'm 31 and my whole life I've known something in my mind has not worked properly. And now today in, the, in this word, I understood what it was, that shame has crippled me. Today, for the first time in 31 years, I feel like that's just been taken off my life. Pretty awesome, hey? Not, why I'm telling you this is that's the power of shame, that it cripples us and it cripples our relationships. And it's responsible for so much dysfunction because every time something happens in a relationship when we feel shame, we're getting out the scissors and we're just cutting those things off because we can't bear to be open and we can't bear to be hurt and we can't bear to be exposed. Isn't that true? And a lot of us, shame is at the cause of the downfall of our relationships. I was talking to someone recently, they're, they're, they're in their 40s and their family was deeply dysfunctional and their father was a violent person and a rapist and they were trying to engage with their family members and the truth came out of everything and in, the sh in, the, in his shame, the father disowned the children, told them never talk to me again, turned his back on them, I never want to see you again. Why? Because they dared to voice the truth about what had happened in their family. Now he'll live a solitary life, a man in his 80s, living a solitary life, a lonely life, a life alone, because a life alone is better than the shame of saying, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Sad, eh? Shame. Let's have a look at distancing. 
Adam said, that woman you gave me, she did this. And the lens of the fall means that distancing says you're not a person to connect with, you're a thing to wrestle against. And when we distance from others, we call names and we label and we backstab. You're an animal now. You're a lower life form. First of all, you were bone in my bone. Now you're that thing. And I'm taking steps backward emotionally. They're verbal or relational acts of violence, verbal acts of violence or actual violence. It's still physically distancing, isn't it? We're devoid of empathy. We're devoid of compassion now. We're just pointing the finger and we're exposing their shame to take the heat off our shame. That woman, she's the one that did this. Distancing. We distance ourselves. We make someone impersonal, an impersonal object or a thing, something to be used and abused, something to be pointed at, something to be scoffed at used for all sorts of stuff but not related to we use distancing from others when rivalry sets in when we propagate combative relationships instead of reconciling relationships connection is broken and now we stand and point the finger that's distancing emotionally or physically here's the third one blame blame says you made me do it it's all your fault i take no responsibility to my role in this i deny my agency the explanation for why I am the way I am and what will happen will never be me saying I was wrong. That's the blame game. I'll never say I did that. It'll always be someone else's fault. It's God's fault because he gave me the woman. It's her fault because she gave me the fruit. The blame game is betrayed by the passive game. I don't exercise agency. I just let stuff come to me. I let the fruit come to me and then I ate it and now it's her fault. The passive game is the underground workings of the blame game. I'm letting everything else happen around me because I'm not taking responsibility. And we use the blame game when blame responses our own capacity, when blame replaces our own capacity to admit that we were wrong. And because deep down, we feel that the admission of something wrong is catastrophic. And it is catastrophic if you have a fractured psyche, by the way. A person with a fractured psyche cannot say, I'm sorry, I was wrong person with a very fractured psyche will internalize everything that happens is their fault and no one else is ever to blame and that's also very unhealthy. Power and control. Power and control takes conflict and says I want to win, I want to control, I want to be in charge, I want to make you do it my way. If you don't do it my way you will suffer. I'll use my power to hurt you or harm you or make you sorry. Scorched earth theory, if, we can't, if I can't enjoy this relationship you won't either. Your desire is for me, but I want to rule over you. And I'll take the power and your desire will be frustrated and you can never have it. I have to protect myself from you. I have to protect myself from you because I want to be in charge and I want to make sure I get in first and beat you to the punch. I better rule or you will. And the horrible thing about that whole dynamic with Adam and Eve is God was actually the ruler in the first place. We use power and control when we make conflict about winning and losing, about a point system, about scoring, about getting even, about being boss. And instead of collaborating, it's about getting ahead in the relationship. It's toxic. Family dysfunction. It's passed on and it's passed on and it's passed on. And if you think about the way your family did conflict, no doubt, because it's human, there might be some really positive ones, but there might also be some really negative cycles that you've internalized and you've perpetuated as well. Man, I sweat on this one. I sweat on this one as a father, like what, if, what toxic patterns came from my family? And man, what am I doing to my kids? Keep my eyes open all the time, man, I've got to get rid of all this stuff. Every narrative after Adam and Eve shows 
the perpetual cycle of family dysfunction. Adam and Eve are torn apart, and then Cain and Abel are torn apart, then Noah and Ham are torn apart, and on it goes. And our conflicts and the way we resolve them will create a future pattern for generations around us, won't they? Family dysfunction. Here's the last one, separation from God. Separation from God is lived in our conflict when we start saying, well, what's God got to do with it? And God's just invisible. But did you know this, every conflict we have, that God is invisible, but He's the invisible referee. The Holy Spirit is present. The Trinity surrounds us, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Always inviting us to do it God's way, to heal, to restore, to love, to restore the ropes of connection. Well, fortunately for us, the cross is the antidote for the fractures of the fall, isn't it? Jesus' shame on the cross was to bear our shame so that we can be truly open and connected again with God and with each other. Where we don't need to perform, but we accept the grace of God knowing that now I am acceptable to God because of the sacrifice of Jesus. The answer to distance is that Jesus brings us near as humans and that we are restored to love deeply and from our heart. We can be fully human and fully connected. The answer to the blame game is that Jesus restores agency, that we don't have to play that game, but we can take personal responsibility. We can reconcile wrongs. We are agents again. This is the essence of Paul's great statement, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. The power and control game is turned on its head by Jesus, who says that now the first shall be last and the last will be first. And the true way to have power is to serve and to heal and to love and to lift other people up. Not to climb to the top of the hierarchy, but to stoop to serve. Family dysfunction is healed as new generations are started and new household codes are born. Husbands and wives submitting to each other out of love for Jesus. Husbands loving their wives like Christ loved the church. Husbands not frustrating their children, but actually nurturing them in the love of the Lord. Have you read Ephesians chapter 5? It's the antidote to the dysfunction of Genesis 3. Separation is dealt with in the cross because we are invited to join God in whole relationship again and join each other in whole relationship again as well. We do have to finish. You guys have been amazing all through this series because we probably preach longer sermons than we've ever had in the history of our church. But it's important stuff for us to talk about. If you miss something, go back and get the uh, audio files or the videos. And uh, I really hope that you'll consider some of both the psychological and the theological ideas we've talked about in this series because at the essence of this series is how you can have a flourishing life with other people in your life as well. How we can be a whole community and a place of healing. We can have great relationships and we can have healthy families and we can have healthy souls and good connections. I want to ask you as a pastor of this church if you would join me in saying let's be a triangulation-free community. Let's be a shame-free community. Let's be a blame-free community. Let's be a power, control, struggle-free community. Let's be a community that doesn't distance and label. And let's be a community that doesn't push each other away. Let's be a community that doesn't snip those ropes of connection every time something happens. But let's build. Let's build together. Let's be connected together. Who's with me in that? In Jesus' name. Why it's important is because I started this message by saying the environment around you is so powerful. So powerful. I just reviewed a research paper on anxiety disorders. 
And what's so fascinating and yet tragic about anxiety disorders is all of the genetic studies shows that they are 30 to 50% responsible, uh, sorry, that genetics are 30 to 50% responsible for a person's anxiety disorder. That is if they have a clinical anxiety disorder and because something is in their DNA, something is in their genetic code, has been passed on to them by their family line and therefore 50% to 30% of the risk they carry in their life that they're going to have an anxiety disorder is because of their genetic code that their, you know, um, their hypothalamus is going to play up, that their you know, limbic system is not going to talk to the rest of their brain or something like that. It's incredible, incredible. This is what's incredible about the research, though. The two German researchers that uh, reviewed all of the genetic case studies, they found this, that even though genes account for 30 to 50% of the risk that you might have a general anxiety disorder, that actually the environment you surround yourself with which includes your social circles, and it includes the activity in your mind. You create an atmosphere in your life by your thoughts and your focus, don't you? And this is what they found, that the, the environmental factors around your life, your social circles, your families, the quality of your relationships, and the atmosphere in your head, your thoughts and your focus and your cognition. This is what they said, that the environment external to you or the atmosphere in your head is so powerful that it either turns off or turns on the expression of those anxiety genes. Don't you think that's amazing? So what we know from the science of that is that your environment can reduce or increase your risk of having really bad outcomes in your life. That's how important our environment is. It's how important our relationships are. My relationships affect my biology. Think about that. They affect my biology so much that even if I had a 50% chance of having an anxiety disorder, that the environment I surround myself with can counteract the sway of that genetic influence. Don't you think that's amazing? And there's mechanisms where your environmental factors actually switch off the expression of certain parts of your DNA. So for me as a church pastor, something that we're really familiar with, because we see people come into church life, come into our community, surround themselves with flourishing people, and then suddenly their life begins to flourish. It's true, isn't it? We see it all the time. And we know why we do that, because our environment is important. Would you guys commit to just closing tonight in prayer and saying, hey, we're going to try to do this real well as a church. We're going to try to be the greatest environment in Alice Springs. We're going to encourage all of our friends. We're going to build good connections. We're going to build strong relationships because when we want people to come in here, listen to this, man, we want what we have together as a community of faith, we want that to affect their DNA. Don't you think that's an amazing possibility for us as a community? It really does. You should see the research on this stuff. It is mind-blowing. We get to build it together by creating a web and an atmosphere that people can come into. Let's not have an environment of shame and distance and blame and manipulation and control. Who could say amen to that in Jesus' name? Why don't you stand on your feet? You guys have been amazing all over this whole series. You've been incredible. Let's close by praying, hey. Father, I pray, pray for our church community that you would help us live lives of wholeness and healing and do conflict resolution well, Lord. Help us not just snip every connection every time something goes wrong, but to repair, to bridge build, Lord, to get past things, to offer grace, to offer forgiveness, to heal our relationships when there's a rift, to handle it well when things are tested, to handle it well when things are strained, Father. Would you help us, Lord, we pray. We ask every one of us in this room, help us, help us ourselves, Lord. Deal with the lens of the fall and our own inner dysfunction. Help us turn to you and follow Jesus. Help us live the rule of Christ. Help us embrace the reign of heaven, Lord, in Jesus' name. 
and where we've been hurt, where we've been fractured, where we've been shamed, where we've blamed, where we've been manipulated or coerced or where we've done it to others. Lord, forgive us and help us be restored and live lives of healthy and whole connection in Jesus' precious name. And everybody said, Amen. I pray for you, my friend. I pray for you in Jesus' name. If you've been hurt in relationships, I pray God would begin a work of healing. I pray God would begin a work of restoration. I pray God would begin a work of goodness in you, that you would begin to build threads of connection with others again, even where you're wounded, even where you're a bit gun shy. I pray the grace of God upon you. I pray God would surround you with great people in Jesus' name. You would turn to Him, that you would walk with Him, that you would know the indwelling power of His Holy Spirit to restore you in the mighty name of Jesus.